Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Study with C. Martin podcast. I'm your host, Shonda Martin. For those of you who are new to the podcast, the Study with C. Martin podcast is the audio companion to the study textbooks and online Bible study course. If you've not already done so, please visit our website at studywithcmartin.com. There you can register for the course and download the material chapter by chapter. Before we get started, we're going to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your word and the power to believe your word. I pray that you would bless every listener, that you would draw everyone to continue to receive truth, continue to reveal yourself to us through your word and everything that we do, Lord. Continue to fill us with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling, that we would know what is the riches of your glory and the inheritance of your saints of light, and that we would all know, see, demonstrate, and experience the exceeding greatness of your power, which is at work toward us and for us who believe your word. God, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. And we thank you for the Bible study time that you've given us today. And I just thank you for the miracle signs and wonders that go forth as a result of us believing and speaking your word in our everyday lives. In Jesus name. Amen. All right. So we're starting with chapter seven today. For those of you who are, again, who are just joining us, if you have not listened to the previous chapters, please come off of this episode and please review the episodes for chapters one through six. We have covered a lot of material so far. We don't want you to be lost and we don't want you to misapply anything that we are covering in this section because chapter seven, we are talking about hindrances to spiritual authority that come from the book of Job and there's a lot of stuff in there. So if you haven't gone over chapters one through six, please stop and go over that and then come back to this one because we've got some good stuff in here, but we need you to have a good foundation first. Okay. All right. From what we have studied thus far, we understand that we permit the power of God to be at work in our lives when we know, believe, and speak what his word says. Now, a person could have studied all of the previous chapters on spiritual law, man's dominion, and spiritual authority, but if they believe and continually speak that God sends tragedy, sickness, or harm, they will never have faith for his power to ever help them. I mean, think about that for a minute. You can have gone through all of the previous chapters. You can have spent years and decades in church from one Sunday to the next saying that you believe what the Bible says and that you believe that God can do anything. But as it pertains to your life and your specific situations and circumstances, if you continue to speak that, well, you know, if you encounter harm or a tragedy, you know, that must have just been God's will. You are training yourself not to have faith in what his word actually says. You are training yourself to accept harm and tragedy when it comes. But where does this misconception come from? A great part of that notion often comes from misunderstanding the scriptures that were written about a man named Job. While we went over a number of untruths like this one in chapter four, where we talked about what the Bible doesn't say, we could not effectively discuss Job's story until after we got some understanding on spiritual authority and spiritual law. But now that we have more understanding, let's get into Job's story. The book of Job in the Bible tells the story of a blessed, wealthy man and his wife who lost all of their wealth, their cattle, their herds, their servants, and even all of their children in the span of just one day. Shortly after that, Job's health began to fail and his friends accused him of bringing the trouble on himself and his distraught wife told him to curse God and die. We see all of these details throughout the book of Job, but specifically in Job chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, 5, 8, and 11. Now Job was one of the holy men of old whom Jesus said did not have the level of spiritual revelation that his disciples had. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 through 17, he told them, blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears for they hear. And he told them that those who were living in Old Testament times, even the prophets back then, they wished they had a glimmer of the revelation that Jesus' disciples would end up having. But they didn't have it because Jesus hadn't come to restore spiritual authority yet. Job was like one of those men. He was living during an era where that revelation had not been provided yet. 
Job was a man living in the Old Testament times who had a causative, permissive view of God and had no understanding of spiritual law or spiritual authority. Again, referring back to what we covered in chapter four, what does it mean for someone to have a causative or permissive view of God? That means that they think that God caused people to have problems or he permitted people to have problems. And when we understand spiritual authority and spiritual law, we understand that because God gave man dominion over the earth, God doesn't permit anything. We permit it because we were given dominion and authority over the earth. Okay. So Job did not have any understanding of spiritual law or spiritual authority, but had a causative and permissive view of God. Now, passively reading about Job can cause you to misunderstand his story and think that people are just sitting ducks, waiting helplessly as God permits or causes sickness, tragedy, or loss to come your way. But that is not the truth. The Bible tells us that Satan is a deceiver. We see that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and that he blinds the minds of people to keep them from receiving the truth that is God's word. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Now, if he can deceive people into thinking that God was not willing to heal or protect Job, he can deceive them into believing that God probably won't heal or protect them either. But Jesus said, the only way you will know the truth, the truth about God and what he has prepared for you through Jesus, is if you will abide and spend time in his word, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's what Jesus said in John chapter eight, verses 31 and 32. Over the next few pages, we will study to know the truth about Job's story and learn how spiritual authority and spiritual law affected his circumstances. So we're gonna look at a couple of lies that have been misconstrued from Job's story. Lie number one. God offered Job to Satan. People often use Job chapter one, verse eight as a basis to say that God gave Satan permission to harm Job. Many translations show it this way. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? I first read the story of Job years ago, late one Sunday night after having gone to church earlier that day. Now, after reading the first few chapters, I slammed the Bible closed, determined never to read that story again. It absolutely terrified me. It sounded like God and Satan were casually making a bet with Job's life, as if to say, let's see how much detriment he can withstand before he gives in. I thought to myself, man... If God and Satan can be in cahoots like this for Job, there's no telling what kind of wager they could make with my life. Seeing that scripture translated in that manner could in no way give anybody any encouragement to believe that God was on their side. But is that what the Bible really said? Let's take a few minutes to study Job's story a little more closely. As you may remember, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. And as it has been translated over hundreds of years, sometimes the correct meaning of the original words have gotten lost in translation. Now, if one translation is adapted from another translation that was not translated correctly, it is quite possible for the translation that followed in later years to also be incorrect. In other words, the later translations end up being like the parent's instruction to multiple children in the same house. The instructions that were told to the first child in the kitchen became a completely different set of instructions by the time it reached the fifth child downstairs. One translation, Young's literal translation, is said to be unusual and that it is a strictly literal, precise, or accurate translation of the original Hebrew and Greek texts. Young's literal translation reads that same verse in Job 1.8 this way, And Jehovah saith unto the adversary, Hast thou set thy heart against my servant Job, because there is none like him in the land, a man perfect and upright, fearing God and turning aside from evil? In this literal translation, we see that God was not offering Job to Satan on a silver platter with an apple in his mouth. God was telling Satan that the only reason Satan had already set himself against Job was because Job feared and obeyed God. 
Again, the King James version of that verse says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But Young's literal translation of that verse said, Have you set your heart against my servant Job because there's none like him? So the King James translation says, Have you considered my servant Job? Like, hey, have you thought about bothering this person today? While Young's literal translation reads it this way, Have you set your heart against my servant Job because there is none like him in the land? A man perfect and upright, fearing God and turning aside from evil? The Bible tells us that God is the judge and Satan is the accuser. We see that in Psalm 75 verse 7 and Revelation 12 verse 10. Satan had come before God to accuse Job, trying to give God reason to condemn him. Satan had already been judged and condemned and wanted God to condemn Job. However, the Bible tells us several times in Job's story that Job was a righteous man and had not sinned. Therefore, there was no reason for God to condemn him. But Satan tried to bait God into doing so anyway. God acknowledged this when Satan came before him a second time concerning Job. We see that in Job chapter 2 verse 3. And this is God talking, acknowledging that Satan was trying to come against his servant Job, saying that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And he, Job, still holds fast to his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against him. You tried to get me to come against him, to destroy him without cause. Contrary to what some have preached and to what some translations have incorrectly stated, God did not offer Job to Satan, and he definitely did not offer Job to Satan because he looked and saw that Job was righteous enough to be tested and tried. That is another message that some have preached, saying that Job was so righteous that you should hope to be as righteous as Job, that you should hope for God to offer you to Satan. And if you're not experiencing challenges in your life, it's because God didn't think you were righteous enough to be tested or tried. That is just, that's unscriptural. God does not offer you, I mean, you would not raise your children up to be respectful and obedient and then go offer them to criminals to test and try them. That just doesn't make any sense. God did not offer Job because he was righteous enough to be tested. That doesn't make sense. God tells us here that the devil tried to incite God against Job to harm him without cause. Sadly, we see that the harm Job encountered was considered and carried out because the devil desired to do so, and Job did not know enough about man's dominion or spiritual authority to do anything about it. And just as with Job, many good Christians today will likewise experience needless harm and loss because the devil desires to do so, and they don't know enough about man's dominion, spiritual authority, and what Jesus did for us to do anything about it. And we talked about this before. Jesus explained this as he taught one day. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again, that passage of scripture is found in Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. As we previously studied, Christians do not get a protected from all harm pass just because we believe in Jesus and go to church every Sunday. As we see with Job's story, what we don't know definitely can hurt us. Likewise, we can choose to remain ignorant and randomly suffer harm as we saw with Job or with those Jesus talked about, or we can study to believe and obey the word of God so that his power to save, heal, and protect can consistently be at work in our lives. Lie number two, God gave Satan permission to harm Job. One reason many Christians have assumed that Satan has to get God's permission to harm you is because of a misunderstanding of what the Bible mentions in Job chapter 1 verses 9 through 12. 
So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Now in this passage, Satan was not asking for God's permission to harm Job. As we read in the previous section, Satan was trying to bait God. What do I mean by that? Satan is always on a mission trying to get somebody to do something, trying to get somebody to go against what God has already commanded. And here he was trying to get God to go against his own word. Just as Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we see that in Genesis chapter 3, and just as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, we see that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he was trying to tempt God to violate his own word. I mean, think about it. Every time you try to follow godly direction in your life, Satan hasn't been too far behind trying to get you to go in the opposite direction. When you've prayed to have peace in your relationships or peace with those who've tried to come against you, the devil tries to bait you into retaliating and getting vengeance for yourself. That's not what God told us to do. God said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. Jesus said that we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us. But the devil always tries to bait people to do something. And again, in Job's story, we see that the devil was trying to bait God to do something. But why would he try to bait God to do something? The main reason he had come before God wasn't just to accuse Job. Satan wanted God to stretch out his hand and harm Job. And what was wrong with Satan's request? Well, in the first place, we've already read scripture after scripture that tells us that God does not cause harm. Secondly, for God to do anything in the earth, he would have to have man's permission to do so first. As we have already mentioned, when God created man, he gave man dominion and authority over the earth and over everything in it. And even though man had lost his spiritual authority over the works of the devil, man was still and still is the only being that has dominion over the earth. You can look that up in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28 and also Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. While God has the physical power and ability to do whatever he feels like doing whenever he feels like doing it, he cannot and does not just do whatever he feels like whenever he feels like it because he is bound by his word. Again, the one thing that is greater than God's love for us is his word. Once he speaks, he cannot take back his word. Why not? The Bible tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. The scripture reference for that is Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, and Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. For God to say something and take it back, that would make him a liar. The Bible tells us, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and does not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper the thing whereunto I sent it. And that's found in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. God gave man dominion over the earth. For him to act without the permission of a man would have violated his own word, causing him to violate spiritual law. As we have just read, God cannot lie, and his word always accomplishes what he set for it to do. Now, as I've said before, many times we can see tragic events and wonder why God let those things happen. God didn't let anything happen. He gave dominion over the earth to man in the same way that you would give a gift to someone. Once that gift leaves your hand, how that gift is used or handled is completely up to the person that now has possession or dominion over it. Likewise, the earth and everything in it is man's domain. Even though the earth belongs to God, man has dominion over it because he gave man dominion over it. For God to do anything on the earth, he would have to be invited to do so by having someone ask in prayer or by someone believing and speaking according to his word. And at that moment, in Job's situation, Job had not done either of those things. Remember, 
We must understand spiritual law. In the same way that having a righteous man die and go to hell would completely redeem and vindicate mankind, having God to violate spiritual law by harming a man he gave dominion to and made a covenant agreement to protect would make God guilty of being a liar, thus nullifying his own word. With this understood, we see that God could not have legally laid a hand on Job. If he said he gave dominion to man, God has to uphold his word. If he took back his word about that, he would have to take back his word about everything else. Well, what else did God give his word about? Well, the sun would have to stop shining, fish would have to stop swimming, and the stars would have to fall from the sky. So if God had chosen to take back his word concerning Job, his word concerning Satan's final judgment would also have been nullified. You can read more about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. So think about that for a minute. Satan was on a mission. He wasn't interested in harming Job. He was interested in getting God to break his punishment. Do you see that? Satan would have done anything to stop that final day from coming. He probably thought, why not try to get God to go against his own word and smite Job so that nothing else he said would come to pass? That way, Jesus would never be born of a woman. He would never redeem mankind and I'd be able to forget all about final judgment and the lake of fire. Now that would have been a pretty good plan if it had been successful. But I thank God that he is God and he is not a man susceptible to Satan's tricks. Now let's get back to Job. In verse 12, when God tells Satan, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. In that verse, God was not giving Satan permission to harm Job. God was only reminding Satan of what was already true. Look back at God's response to Satan in a plain conversation. This is my paraphrase of that. Now, Satan, you know that you overthrew man's spiritual authority when you tricked Adam into being disobedient. You got him to break the only law there was in the Garden of Eden. Since Job is on the earth where man is already yielded to your spiritual authority, you know that you already have access to the affairs of his life. But I remind you that you cannot take his life. Do you see that? You know, people like to ask, why did God allow the serpent to be in the Garden of Eden in the first place? The Garden of Eden was not heaven. The Garden of Eden was a physical place on the earth. Where had Satan been cast down to? The earth and the areas beneath the earth. He was already down here. And because he had been condemned to the earth until final judgment time comes, he's already down here. So in the Garden of Eden, Satan was already there and he just took on the form of a serpent. And that's how that event transpired. He was already here. It wasn't like a break in the hedge or a break in spiritual things that happened. Nevertheless, as we covered in the last segment of chapter six, Adam had all of the dominion and spiritual authority needed to keep Satan in check, but he chose not to. So getting back to Job. Now you might ask, even if this was true, that God did not give Satan permission to harm Job, why didn't he just help Job? Didn't he love Job? Wasn't Job a righteous man? Wasn't he a just man? Remember, God can't do anything in the earth without the permission of a person. As Job's troubles began to unfold, Job didn't ask for help. He thought God wrongly sent the trouble as if God had mistaken him with some other person who deserved to be harmed. And why would he think that he didn't deserve harm? Sin was usually the cause of harm. And the Bible tells us in Job chapter 1 verse 22 and Job chapter 2 verse 10 that Job had not sinned. So sin could not have been the cause of his problems. But because Job saw God as the one who sent the problem instead of the one who could help him, God couldn't do anything to help him. But the devil was free to cause him harm until Job asked God to help him. Remember Satan's motives for trying to tempt God. Satan knew that if he got God to violate his own word, Jesus would not have been born to redeem mankind. Not only that, 
Jesus would not have restored man's spiritual authority in the earth and he would not execute final judgment over the devil in the age to come. Scripture reference for that is Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, Luke chapter 10 verse 19, and Revelation chapter 20 verse 10. Now at that time, all of that was too much for Job to understand. Job did not have full revelation or any revelation about the coming Redeemer, nor did he understand that Satan was the cause of his problems. Job was spiritually ignorant about Satan and lacked the authority and power to deal with him anyway. Had he at least known that Satan was the problem, he could have prayed for God to deal with his adversary and been delivered a whole lot sooner than he was. A bright side in Job's story is that God was still able to help Job in spite of his lack of spiritual understanding. As his health continued to fail, Job's friends spoke against Job and God. Then Job did what many of us have often done when we found ourselves in a mess. He angrily ranted to God, but God listened to Job and then God responded. And we see his response in chapters 39 to 41. After hearing God's lengthy reply, Job realized that he did not know as much as he thought about how things actually worked. Then he repented for his lack of understanding and his critical words, and he prayed for his friends. It was then that God was able to legally step in on Job's behalf and put a stop to those attacks from the enemy. What's more, Job ended up with twice as much as he had before. He ended up with twice as much wealth and he had more children. How did that happen? Prayer. Remember, prayer is the open door that invites God into our situations. It is how we give God permission to help us. But many times our own failure to forgive and pray for those who've wronged us are the very factors that hinder the help and healing we've been praying for. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 13, which covers the importance of walking in love. Now, by this, by praying for his friends that had wrongly accused him of bringing the problems on himself, Job demonstrated what James 5.16 says we are to do when we need God's power to be at work in our own lives. Confess your faults and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, even though Job did not know to ask for God's help in dealing with Satan's attacks, he did acknowledge that his previous thoughts about God were wrong and he remembered to pray for his friends however good or bad they had been to him. And while the Bible does not mention exactly what Job said when he prayed for his friends, we see that immediately following that prayer, God turned his captivity. That's in Job 42 verse 10. In other words, God restored what Job lost, giving him back double the cattle and the herds that he had before, and also giving him and his wife just as many children as they had before. Now, again, whenever we're going through things and we don't have a right perspective of God or right perspective of the situation or right perspective of our responsibility in a matter, we end up with the short end of the stick. It is important for us to understand spiritual law and spiritual authority so that we can be protected from these works of the enemy and so that we can have God's power continually at work in our lives. One of the biggest hindrances that we see from the story of Job is not having a correct understanding about God, your own goodness, or spiritual law. A major hindrance to a believer's ability and willingness to successfully exercise spiritual authority was derived from yet another misconception in the story of Job, that Job brought his problems upon himself through fear. The Bible says that Job's children, they were older, they often celebrated with wine. And that following those celebrations, Job would offer sacrifices to God on their behalf, just in case they sinned. We see that in Job chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. Then we also see in Job chapter 3 verse 25, after Job had experienced all of these various acts of adversity, Job said, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Now, we know that from the example of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, that fear and unbelief are sin. Why? Because fear and unbelief keep you from doing what God commands you to do. God commanded the Israelites to go to their promised land, but they could not enter because of their unbelief. Likewise, you cannot receive healing, deliverance, restoration, peace, or anything else if you are in fear or unbelief. However, in Job's situation, 
he was not operating in fear. He had not been continually listening to thoughts of fear and detriment, believing and speaking those things so that they could come to pass. In offering sacrifices to God for his children, Job was interceding for his children, just as many parents do today with their teenage or grown children. Think about that. Those of you with grown children or teenage children, you've prayed for them. Lord, you know what Bobby's doing. You know where he is. I'm not with him every day when he goes out with his friends. Lord, you know the dangers that are out there, seen and unseen. Help him to make right decisions and help him to do your will. Lord, if he's done wrong, forgive him. If he's made bad decisions, help him to make right decisions, Lord. Now, when you pray like that for your child, does that sound like fear or intercession? Yes, people can pray full of fear, but that particular kind of prayer, that's not a fear-based prayer. So to take Job's act of offering sacrifices on behalf of his children out of context and mix it with him saying that the thing he feared most had come upon him is unscriptural. More than that, it's a biblical Frankenstein situation. Somebody with limited understanding taking a little bit of this and mixing it with a little bit of that and ending up with an ungodly picture of what the word of God originally said. As mature believers, it is imperative that we know why we believe and do the religious things that we believe and do. Simply accepting this ungodly perspective just because somebody preached it in a sermon or sang it in a song without taking the time to study it for ourselves keeps God's people from having the help he provided for us in his word. Had Job made that statement after his children died and after that event alone, then you might be able to infer a direct correlation between fear and him losing his children. But Job made that statement after he not only lost all of his children, but all of his cattle, all of his herds, all of his servants, and his health too. As Job evaluated the disastrous state of his life, he realized that instead of being left with at least one good thing, all he had left was a few so-called friends who blamed him for the calamity and a distraught and devastated wife who, after finding herself at the end of her faith, told him to curse God and die. One would hope that if you ever found yourself in the middle of a tough battle, like Job had, you would at least be left with some Bible-believing people around you to encourage you. But Job and his wife had been stripped of everything good and had clearly been left with the bad. Now I have to pause right here for just a brief moment to talk about Job's wife. And why is it important to evaluate his wife in all of this? Because when we have the proper perspective of evaluating what the Bible says, it helps us to properly apply the word of God to our own lives. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about his wife, but what we often fail to look at is that Job was not in this situation by himself. She was in this situation with him. People like to talk about the patience of Job. This woman lost all of her children, the children that she carried and gave birth to in one day. Never mind the cattle, never mind the herds. She lost her children. So when we look at or try to isolate his wife saying, curse God and die, that wasn't a light statement that she was making. This woman had been through it. For someone to lose one child or one family member or suffer one distressful kind of a situation is a terrible thing for anybody to have to experience. But considering that she had lost all of her children in the span of one day, knowing that her husband was righteous and had been doing things the way God had commanded him to, that would have to leave a bitter taste in anybody's mouth who had been faithfully serving the Lord for years. So when we look at his wife, we have to look at his wife with a bit of compassion, with a lot of compassion, because she wasn't just some bitter, contentious woman who was just randomly just wanted to pick a fight with him because he went to church too much. She was a woman whose heart was full of pain, who was distressed, distraught, and emotionally devastated, and just could not understand how those things could have happened in spite of how faithfully her husband had served the Lord. She had experienced tremendous loss. Like many of us, when we have experienced hurt, loss, or devastation, she seemed to be saying to Job, we've served God and it hasn't afforded us anything. It hasn't benefited us. We may as well find something else to believe in. That's what she was saying there. 
His wife sounded just as hurt as Thomas, the apostle, sounded when he refused to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Thomas had just gone through too much believing that his friend Jesus was the Messiah, that God was going to deliver him and protect him, and Jesus ended up crucified. It was just too much for him to believe. He was hurt. And Thomas gets a bad rap, just like Job's wife has gotten a bad rap, where people judge them on these isolated conversations, making it seem like, oh, they just lack faith. Oh, they just lack a steadfastness in the word of God. They just should have believed. Well, if you saw your entire family get killed in a day, or if you saw one of your close friends who you knew were mightily used of God get crucified, it's quite possible you might sound like you're wavering in faith yourself that you don't believe the word of God anymore. You got to be able to give people a little latitude to come to terms with things and find their faith in those tough moments. We can't latch on to trying to crucify somebody because they utter a, a statement of devastation in a moment of devastation. In those moments, we got to swoop in with the word of faith. We have to swoop in with some encouragement or just swoop in with no words and just give the person the hug some encouragement. We don't see where Job's friends gave them hugs and encouragement. They came wrongly evaluating his situation, just as those in our time who have come preaching from a wrong perspective, saying that he brought this stuff on himself through fear. Now to look back at this fear argument where people have said and long preached that Job brought these circumstances upon himself because he confessed that the thing he had been fearing the most came upon him, Think about it. Had Job been believing and speaking every day that terrible things would happen to him? Of course not. Now, as we'll get into in chapter nine, there is cause and effect that can happen as a result of believing and speaking bad things. You keep believing and speaking, bad things will come. They will come on you. But the Bible does not tell us this was the situation with Job. Again, the Bible says that Job was a righteous man. He was a just man. But looking at how people have taken this one statement that Job made out of context to say that he brought these things on himself through fear. Again, that's a similar perspective that Job's friends had. They were accusing him of bringing the problems on himself in some way. And when God addressed Job's friends, he told his friends that they had not spoken rightly concerning Job. So likewise, for us to say that Job brought this on himself in any capacity, would be wrong as well. Again, we got to look at this stuff in context. Don't take one verse and isolate that verse and say, okay, well, that must be what it meant. If Job's friends were wrong, if God himself told Job's friends that they were wrong for saying that Job brought the problems on himself, then for us to assume the same is a wrong perspective. Now, when we look at that verse, that statement that Job made about what he feared the most coming upon him, think about it like this. How many times have you seen people in tragic situations, either in person or on the news or the television or radio saying similar comments? Most of those people were not fearing every day that their loved ones would perish in an accident, that they would lose their home in a fire or that they would get terminated from their job. Likewise, in that moment, Job was simply saying that the worst possible thing he could have ever imagined had happened to him. Furthermore, Job offered sacrifices to God, not to some idol or false God. To say that Job brought this situation on himself because he offered sacrifices to God on behalf of his children essentially says that Job paid God to put a hit out on his family. Now you think about that for a moment. How many times have ministers told congregations to sow seeds for their loved ones who've gone astray? When we study to know God's word for ourselves, we learned that, first of all, that we don't need to sow seeds to get God to help us. But if you ever have given an offering at church in the hopes that God would heal or help or protect a loved one, and you also believe that Job's fear offering caused God to punish him, you need to call the church and get your money back right now because God is obviously going to take out your entire family. No, that's not true. Understand this. God is not a mob boss sending Satan to rub out your family when you give an offering. The practice of offering sacrifices was not random anyway. The Bible shows us 
that it was instituted by God, not just when the law was given by Moses, but had been required in some capacity as far back as with Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. See that in chapter four. With that understood, God would not tell his people to make an offering so that he could use that process to harm them. That just wouldn't make any sense. Remember, the Bible said that Job was a righteous man, meaning that he did what was right in the sight of God. With that understood, we can see that making an offering to God never causes God to harm us because God never causes harm. To believe this fear argument means that Job, who did not sin, received punishment because of his offerings to God. But David, who was a murderer, adulterer, and disobeyed God, was forgiven, blessed, and prosperous, ended up becoming king of Israel and received the promise that the Messiah would come through his lineage. That sounds like God got their blessings and punishments mixed up. No, the Bible tells us that God is a loving God, a loving father. And if we ever do sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and he is merciful to our unrighteousness. We see scripture reference of that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. No, just as he was ever ready to show David mercy for his sins and for his faults, he would have also shown the same mercy to Job had he actually done something wrong. Again, the Bible is careful to mention in two places that in spite of all that he endured, Job did not sin, neither in his words or his actions. We see that in Job chapter 1 verse 22 and Job chapter 2 verse 10. While Job did not sin through fear or call bad things to happen by using his words to speak bad things, he did not have a right perspective of himself or God. In Job chapter 13 verse 15, Job said, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. In that verse, we see that Job had the same perspective many of us have had when we have found ourselves in challenging and unfair situations. Job believed that he had been a good guy and ranted to God about how he did not deserve what he was going through. And although he trusted God, Job just couldn't figure out why God was sending such harm and destruction his way. Again, he said there, though he slayed me, he's saying like, though God is doing this stuff to me, I'll still trust him. And I'm going to defend my own ways before him. I'm going to tell him that I was right. I'm going to tell God that he's wrong for sending this punishment my way. But what's so wrong with having that kind of perspective? When we study to understand spiritual law, we see that there was a lot going on here that Job just didn't understand or know how to deal with. Again, Job was a righteous man and he suffered all of this chaos and calamity. But David did a variety of things that were ungodly, yet David continued to walk in the blessings of God. And what was the difference? David understood that when he repented, when he acknowledged that he didn't have a right perspective on things, or he acknowledged that he was going down the wrong path, he looked to God for his help. And at this point in Job's story, he did not look to God for help. He continued to look at God as the source of his problems. Again, when we study spiritual law, we can see that there was a lot going on here that Job just didn't understand or know how to deal with. The same can be said when other good people throughout the Bible days and even today find themselves in seasons and situations of peril and detriment. Like Job, when we don't understand that spiritual things can cause tangible harm, we question why our goodness wasn't enough to keep us from the harm. While Job was a righteous man and didn't deserve the detriment that he received, we must understand that the devil doesn't just come at people with things they don't deserve. Just as the devil can try to bring sickness back to a person who has become passive about believing and speaking what the word of God says about healing, he tries to bring harm anytime he has been given place to do so through our own sin or disobedience, and he takes advantage of people when we remain ignorant about his devices or become passive about praying and subduing our lives with the word of God. We must do more than just be good if we don't want to be victims of the devil's time and chance of random accidents, harm, detriment, and tragedy. 
If we are truly going to have God's power consistently at work against the works of the devil, we must actively study, believe, and obey the word of God for ourselves. And the scripture reference for that, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Again, we can't just assume that because we're quote unquote good Christian folk that we're just going to be safe and protected all the time. There is a work for us to do. And that work comes through us believing and speaking the word of God over our lives and speaking against harm and danger and speaking against detriment, not using our words to confess that, well, sometimes bad things happen. We don't confess that. We speak what the word of God says. His word says that we're blessed. And when we continue to speak in line with that and believe that, we are blessed and protected. Now, another aspect of Job's wrong perspective says that God is good. But we have to accept that sometimes that he also sends harm, which is not true. With that kind of perspective, people have misapplied Matthew chapter 5 verses 44 and 45. that says God sends rain on the just and on the unjust, wrongly thinking that the word rain in that verse means bad things. However, when we read the passage in context, we see that Jesus was saying that we should pray for and do good or give rain to those who have wronged us just as God helps and gives rain to his people in spite of how good or bad they have been. When the Bible was written, most people were farmers. If you are a farmer, is rain a bad thing? No, you're praying for God to send the rain because your crops need rain. To go without rain, that's a drought and that would cause a famine. So to say that God sends rain on the just and the unjust He says that to say that even though people have done you wrong, you still pray for God to bless them and send rain on their crops so that they can have a harvest, just like he's sending rain on your crops for you to have a harvest. The problem with Job having this dual perspective of God saying that he is good, but then also that he sends the bad, that dual picture will keep you from having the healing, help, and protection that you need and desire. How? Job wrestled in his understanding pleading with God to relent from torturing him, but remained steadfast in the thought that even if God did send the harm and loss, he would accept it and trust him. Tragically, many good Christian folks today have likewise suffered through sickness, harm, loss of loved ones, and even have ended up dying themselves because they wrongly believed that they should happily endure those faith torture tests from God as good little Christian soldiers as if he was giving them their share of the world's pain and harm or was somehow trying to make them a better person as a result of those difficult situations, hoping that after they suffered enough, he would eventually bless them in the end as he did with Job. Sadly, that perspective causes people to continually embrace sickness and harm instead of resisting the devil so that they can have what God says. And that's what the word of God tells us to do in James chapter four, verse seven, submit to God, believe what God said, but resist and reject what the devil says and he'll flee from you. But as we have already studied, as long as we accept the devil's sickness and harm, it will remain. Moreover, having that perspective, that dual perspective of God, never does anything about the problem and renders God powerless to help you. Telling God, when are you going to stop torturing me, is not the same as asking God for help. And as long as you have a wrong picture of God, You will continue to blame God for the problem instead of asking him for help. And Satan will continue to wreak havoc in your life, just as he did with Job. That's why David walked in the blessings of God in spite of his sins. Whenever David realized that he had done wrong, he did not come to God with empty apologies, but he sincerely repented, confessing his faults and making changes. And in spite of those problems or sin issues, David always saw God as his help. Blaming God does absolutely nothing to stop the works of the devil. You have to recognize God and Satan as who they both really are. Having the wrong picture of God and Satan keeps you from enforcing the good that God promised you and only allows the bad to continue. As I previously mentioned, Job didn't have a revelation of spiritual authority or power over the enemy. In fact, he didn't have any authority or power to have a revelation of. But after a lengthy conversation with God, 
Job realized that his perspective of God had been wrong. That even though Job was a righteous man who loved and worshiped God, he realized that they were still much about God that he had no clue about. Job came to himself and spoke to the Lord. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be ruined. Your plans are always possible and cannot be hindered. No plan of yours can be ruined or can be hindered. You asked, who is this that made my counsel unclear or hidden by saying things that are not true? Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand. That's what Job said. I spoke of things I did not understand. I talked of things too wonderful for me to know. So now I hate or despise myself. I will change my heart and life. I will repent and sit in dust and ashes for questioning God. And that is found in Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. Job recognized here that there was way more about God and how he operated than he could understand at that time. So he repented. God cannot work on our behalf when we embrace sin or that we believe that he sent the harm and speak against or refuse to believe his word. Remember, while Job did not sin, he did not have a right picture of God. If you speak doubt and or unbelief against God's willingness to save, heal, or help you, he cannot save, heal, or help you. By your own words, you will either enable him to heal and help you, or you will render him powerless to heal or help you. And we see scripture reference for that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. Because Job recognized that he did not understand as much as he previously thought, he repented. And then God was free to not only restore all that he had lost, but he also vindicated him before his hurtful friends who had come against him. Like Job, many of us have blamed God for the works of the devil that came against us or our loved ones in the past because we had no understanding of spiritual law or spiritual authority. We accuse God of sending harm and detriment our way and accuse him of allowing it to come in the first place. If God can only help us when we ask him for help, can he help us if we're blaming him for sending the pain instead of asking him for help? How that must have hurt the heart of God to hear our emotional rants and hours of blame when all he has ever done is to try to help us. If that has ever been your posture towards God, you need to make a change. You need to stop now and repent. Father, in the name of Jesus, I repent for blaming you for the works of the devil that came into my life. I recognize now that you are and have always been my help. I recognize that you have never done me any harm and will never do me any harm. Thank you for sending Jesus to redeem me, heal me, save me, and help me. Help me to exercise dominion over the earth, over my body, and over the affairs of my life as you've commanded me to do. In Jesus' name. And wherever else you need God to help you, add that in right now. If you need God to help you with a problem, ask him to help you with the problem. If you need God to help you with any situation that you're experiencing with your body, ask him to help you with that. If you need help with situations with your children or in your marriage or in your finances, ask him to help you now. In Jesus' name. Would I agree for you to help them? In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. Remember, God is never the source of your problem. He is always the source of your help. Never attribute the problem to God, but always acknowledge the help that he has provided for us in his word and through his son, Jesus. One last look at Job. Even though he lived during Old Testament times, was it possible for Job to have avoided the harm and loss that he endured? To determine whether or not Job could have done anything to prevent or avoid the harm and loss that he endured, it would be helpful to determine when Job's story took place. Most books throughout the Old and New Testament give details about the kings, rulers, and people groups that are being talked about, as well as general and sometimes specific information about the kings, people groups, and circumstances of neighboring areas that were also around in those times to provide historical context and validity. However, the book of Job is unlike most other books in the Bible, as the details of Job's story are tightly focused only on Job's personal battle, his losses, and his conversations with his wife and friends, and does very little to provide any historical or contextual information about the land, the rulers, or any other people that were around when this happened. Why is this important? Throughout the Bible, we see where sections of the population, and even entire nations of people, suffered famines, plagues, 
military defeat, enslavement, and destruction as a result of the sin and disobedience of an individual or the leaders or because of widespread sin and disobedience among the people. Even though God promised them victory, the Israelite army was defeated and chased by their enemies because a man named Achan disobeyed God. We see that in Joshua chapter 7. The people of Israel suffered a three-year famine after the death of King Saul because of an act of disobedience Saul committed before he died. That story is recorded in Joshua chapter 9 and also 2 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. The people of Israel were afflicted by a plague and 70,000 people died because of King David's disobedience. And that is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The people of Israel were taken captive and scattered across foreign lands by the Assyrians and their homeland was given to captives from other territories because of the wickedness of the kings and of the people. And that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. We also see where the people of Judah, they were taken captive by the king of Babylon and the nation was left desolate because of the people's disobedience and the king's refusal to repent. You can see that recorded in the entire book of Jeremiah and also in 2 Kings chapter 24, chapters 24 and 25. Now, as we have already read, the Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man and had not sinned. If the calamity he experienced was similar to the situations that I just mentioned and had been caused by someone else's sin or disobedience, was there any way he could have been protected since Job himself had not sinned? Let's see what the Bible says. Even though the rest of the Israelites had disobeyed God and were judged and were not permitted to enter the promised land, two men, Caleb and Joshua, believed and obeyed God and they were the only two adults that left Egypt that got to go into the promised land. Everybody else that had left Egypt died in the wilderness and their children and grandchildren went into the promised land with Joshua and Caleb. We see that recorded in Numbers chapters 13, 14, 32, and 34. Even though a famine had been pronounced on the land due to the disobedience of the king and the people, the Shunammite woman was protected because God told the prophet Elisha to tell her to leave the area until the famine was over. She believed and obeyed what he told her, and when she returned seven years later, her land and all the profits her land made during that time was returned to her. And that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1-6. through 6. Even though the entire region was suffering through a famine for three and a half years because of the kings and the people's disobedience, God sent the prophet Elijah to the widow of Zarephath. And because she believed and obeyed what the prophet told her, God worked miracles so they never ran out of food during that time of famine. And that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17. Even though judgment had come to everyone around them due to sin, disobedience, or for hindering God's people, several others were also protected because they believed and obeyed what God said. We see that with Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, Lot and his daughters, that's in Genesis chapter 19, and Rahab and her family. And that's recorded in Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 through 24 and Joshua chapter 6 verses 20 through 25. Then lastly, we see that even though it had been prophesied that children would be slaughtered as they had been in the days of Moses' birth, Jesus was protected from execution because Joseph believed and obeyed what God said. And we see that recorded in Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 22 and chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and then also Matthew chapter 2. With those examples, we see that even if the harm that Job experienced had been caused by someone else's sin or disobedience, Job still could have been protected from that harm if he too had believed and obeyed God. But again, the Bible says that Job was a righteous man, so why wasn't he? Remember, the Bible tells us in Psalm 37:25 that God does not forsake the righteous. But who are the righteous? The righteous are those who, according to spiritual law, are free from sin and offense, who also believe and obey God. So while we see that Job had not sinned, there may have been a problem with what he believed and spoke. Many times we can believe the word of God as long as nothing is going wrong. But if things appear to go wrong, we give up on faith and complain about how God's word must not be working for us. And as we saw with Job, when situations of harm try to come near, We are not to complain and accept those things as being final. 
Instead, we are to resist those works of the devil by continuing to believe and speak what the word of God says about the situation. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, he taught his disciples about exercising man's dominion and spiritual authority over the works of the devil. But even during Old Testament times, when people did not have full revelation of man's dominion, spiritual law, or spiritual authority, we do see where the spiritual law found in Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18 was at work, where people were delivered from harm when they looked to God or his prophets for help and chose to believe and accept what he said and reject the works of the devil. We see that in these examples. Even though her son had died, the Shunammite woman believed and continually declared that all was well. She refused to accept that harm and her son was brought back to life. And that story was recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 8 through 37. Even though no one else in Syria had ever been healed of leprosy, Naaman, a Syrian military leader, refused to accept that he could not be healed because he had no covenant with God or because no one else had ever been healed of leprosy. He believed that if he went to see the prophet Elisha, he would be healed. And he was. And we see that recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5 verses 1 through 19. Even though other people's children had been sold off to pay debts, a prophet's widow refused to accept those circumstances for her family. She believed that the prophet Elisha could help her. And he gave her a miraculous instruction that caused her to be able to pay off her debts keep her children, and have enough money left for her and her family to live on. And we see their story in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1-7. through 7. And we even see this in a situation that predated the law, when Abraham obeyed God's direction to put his son Isaac on the altar. When Isaac saw the wood, he asked his father where the offering was. Abraham replied, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And just as he believed and spoke, God provided a ram for the sacrifice and Isaac was not harmed. And that's recorded in Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 through 19. While Naaman and the Shunammite woman had no covenant with God, Abraham and the widow did. Why is this important? Naaman and the Shunammite woman could have focused on the fact that they had no covenant with God and given up on any hope for healing or help. And Abraham and the widow could have gotten mad at God and focus on what their situations looked like, thinking that God must have changed his mind about blessing them and their families. Instead, they all believed God, and God did exactly what they believed and spoke. The people in these last examples faced real problems, real financial issues, real threat of enslavement, incurable sicknesses, and even death. They all lived during Old Testament times when people had limited understanding about man's dominion and spiritual authority. Yet they all received God's supernatural help, protection, and healing, not because they were special or because God randomly chose to bless them, but because they believed and even spoke that his power would be at work for them in spite of what their very real opposing circumstances looked like. So with these Old Testament examples, we see that it is quite possible that Job did not have to keep the permanence of those circumstances or even have to have those health conditions for the length of time that he had them. In the same way that the power of God would have worked to heal the man's son from Mark chapter 9, the power of God should have been at work in Job's situation had Job truly believed that those acts against him could not remain because he was righteous. After all, a major benefit of being righteous was that you would have God's power and protection at work for you and your family. But we see that very thing happen in the church today. As long as things are good, righteous people say they believe that God heals and protects his people. But when bad things try to come or symptoms of sickness or dysfunction try to persist after we have prayed, we often give up on what we pray for and accept the notion that God must have changed his mind or that our situation must not have been covered by his word. And I don't say that lightly. When we experience challenges in various areas of our lives from one day to the next, it can be difficult to resist what those things look like, to stand against those things with the word of God. But for us to see the power of God consistently at work in our lives, that's what we're supposed to do. We have to keep believing and speaking what the word of God says. Otherwise, if we give in and start speaking what the stuff looks like, That's all we're ever going to have, and his power will never be at work for us. Again, those last examples show people during Old Testament times who experienced real situations of harm 
that had been permanent for everyone else. Yet they were supernaturally turned around for them because they believed, obeyed, and spoke what God told them. And the same faith that caused people to be healed, helped, and raised from the dead back then is what causes people to be healed, helped, and raised from the dead today. Moreover, Job's story is like that of many people today. Unless God reveals the full story to us, we don't know and may never know all of the details that contributed to the person's situation. A scripture reference for that is Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. With that understood, we cannot just look at anybody's end results, even Job's, and just assume that it must have been God's will for them to suffer harm, affliction, or loss. Far too often, we anchor our faith in what we or others have experienced in the past and the limited details that we know about those experiences instead of what the Word of God actually says. When we study the entire word of God in context, not just Job's story alone, we understand that we can accept the good that God provided by continuing to believe and speak what his word says, even in the midst of terrible or opposing circumstances. Job and everyone else who believed and obeyed the word of God under the old covenant should have always been blessed and protected, just as those living today who believe and accept that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law and gave us authority and power over the works of the devil, should likewise always be blessed and protected. Just as it was never God's will for Job to be harmed, it is never God's will for us to be harmed, which means that whenever people back then, and whenever people today, don't receive the blessings and protections of God, it is because we missed something somewhere. Whether or not we ever know all of the details that contributed to Job's story or anybody else's situation, God's word assures us that whenever we believe, accept, and obey his word, we will always have his power at work to save, heal, and protect us in spite of previous results or how bad things may appear. All right, we have come to the end of chapter seven. I hope that the material in this lesson was helpful to you in in having a better perspective on applying the word of God to your life, where you no longer think that if you ever experienced harm or loss, or if others experienced harm or loss, that God did not send harm, that there were some things that we obviously did not understand in those situations. Hopefully that has cleared that up for you. But when we know better, we can do better. When we know what the word of God says, we can start applying his word and have his power at work in our lives. Again, if you've not already been to the website to register for the free online course, please do so. You can visit us at studywithcmartin.com, register for the free online course. You can access the materials chapter by chapter and take assessments so you can see how you're doing with pertaining the material. If you need to reach us, send an email to contact at studywithcmartin.com. You can send us a message on Facebook or Instagram at studywithcmartin or on Twitter at studywithcmartin. You can also leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash study with C. Martin. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us on the Study with C. Martin podcast. I've been your host, Shonda Martin. Take care.